If you would grab your Bibles and turn with me to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. Inside your bulletin are those white Connect cards. If you'd be sure to take those and fill them out, that'll be a great help to us. We're in Esther chapter 4. One way to find Esther if you're using a physical copy of God's Word is to open right to the middle, open to the middle of the Bible, and you'll probably be in the book of Psalms. Go back one book, you'll be in Job, one book beyond that, earlier than that, and you'll be in the book of Esther. Middle of the Bible, start flipping left, and you'll get to the book of Esther after you get through Job. Esther chapter 4. On this pre-Thanksgiving weekend, we are finishing a sermon called Finding God's Will, a sermon series called Finding God's Will, because there are, there are three things that the elders of our church know are true for you if you are to know God's will for your life. And those three things are, number one, that we want you to rest and worship. No matter who you are, no matter what your experience in the Christian life is, you're called to rest and worship. And number two, you're called to grow in community. We don't do the Christian life alone. We grow together. You grow in community. Number three, we looked at last week, and that was what? To rediscover your calling. And if you use these three things, rest and worship, grow in community, rediscover your calling, you will know that you are in God's will. And when you do those three things, you find freedom like you've never found before to live out your calling in the way that God has called you and to make a difference in the world. And there is something that I know about every single one of us in this room. That there is a gap between your weaknesses and your dreams. There is a gap between who you are and who you want to be. That's something that the elders and I know is true of every single one of us. There's a gap between your weaknesses and your calling, between your weaknesses and your dreams, if you will. Let me um, give you some examples. There was a, a, a friend of mine I went to high school with. His name was AJ. AJ did not have a father. And AJ's entire life, he wanted to be a father to young men, to teach them what it was like to have a father figure in their lives. But there was only one problem. He had a secret addiction. And so he would go months where he would be able to do what he felt called to do. And then he would find himself in the depths of depression and despair, struggling with this weakness. There was a gap in AJ's life between his weaknesses and his dreams. Or there's a mom that I know named Carrie. She's an amazing mom. She's amazing. And yet... Every night after she puts her kids to bed, she looks herself in the mirror and she knows she doesn't measure up. She beats herself down because she's not the perfect mom. How, how, do, I, how do I actually disciple my children? They're, they're, they're struggling. Is it, is it me as a mom? She wants to be a good mom so bad, but she is just inwardly distraught because between the misses and the messes of her house, all she sees is failure. And she's an amazing mom. And by the way, so are many of you moms. There's a gap in Carrie's life between her weaknesses and her dreams. And this is, 
you know, let me just get personal for a second. A lot of you know my story. <laughs> when I was in high school, this is so embarrassing. When I was in high school, I had a locker mate in my high school fo- on my high school football team with a dear friend of mine named Chad Berry. And Chad was the left guard of our high school football team. And before, before the games, Chad would be like blaring Metallica, you know, and listening to the game. And in my self-righteousness, I would walk up to our locker to get dressed for the game and be like, yo, bro, no way. Get the secular music out of here. We're putting in DC talk. And Chad, Chad later used to joke with me. He goes, you know how we lost so many games, man? Because Metallica's better. <laughs> But there was a gap. You know, there, I was, I, some of you are like, that's great. I would love for my kids to listen to, sec- to Christian music. There was a huge gap because I was relationally stunted. There was a gap between my weakness of trying to be a good witness to my high school football team and my total lack of self-awareness of how it came off. There was a gap between my weaknesses and my dreams. Some of you know this. Some of you are like white, hot, hot about theology. You've got into the Reformed Church of your dreams. You love it. You're reading all this stuff. And you're just like, you're digging in. And it's great. It's wonderful. And man, you know what? It's so cool. You're just taking off. But emotionally, your spouse is dying at home. And you don't even see it. There's a gap. There's a gap between your weaknesses and your dreams. And what I want to do in this text is I, I want to just step right into that gap. So if you look at Esther 4, um, context is king, we say around here, right? If, it, if you don't have the context, you have a pretext, right? So context is king. What you're going to read is about a decision that Esther makes that catapults her into a, her calling, if you will, a very pivotal time in the history of God's people. And so you're not going to understand what's happening in chapter 4 unless you understand what happens in chapters 1 through 3. There was an advisor to the king, and his name was Haman. And there were a people, Israel, who had been taken in uh, under Persian captivity under King Xerxes, or King Ahusserus, as it says in Hebrew. King Xerxes is the Greek name. And these people were standing in Haman's way of being all that he wanted to be in the kingdom. And so, therefore, Haman convinced... Are you all okay on the sound or be using another mic? Are you good? Can you all hear me okay or is it just like really feedbacky? Okay, I'm going to use this one. So, King... Uh, so, Haman basically says to King Xerxes, there are people who are in my way. And so... King Xerxes sets up a a, a law, one law, Esther 4 says. And that is that he is going to eradicate the Jews. And meanwhile, there is is a a woman, her name is Esther, who, mark this in your head, is an orphan. And she is taken care of by her uncle, and his name is Mordecai. And uh, in the empire of Persia, Esther, this young enslaved Jew with this uncle as an orphan. Her uncle is Mordecai. There is a point at which in the book of Esther, the king of Persia basically fires the queen. And 
Esther, along with all the maidens of the land, are called into his harem. Some questionable choices there, but let's just go right at it. And in the end of this contest, who wins the contest? But Esther. And she's called to be the new queen of Persia. It was just an amazing, amazing experience, moment. And so you have Esther, who is at the very, very point of this incredible decision. And this is what you read together. Let's look down and read in Esther 4, verse 10 through 17. And then Esther spoke to Hathak, that is one of the king's eunuchs. You see that back in verse 5 if you have your apps or your Bible. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. Everybody say one law. To be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And, all who know, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days or uh, nights. And I and my young women also will fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and I will, and if I perish, I perish. The famous line in the book of Esther. And Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Now, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. First of all, what I want you to see in the book of Esther is the type of person that God chooses. In the Persian Empire... There were strati, there, were, there was, a, there was a, a very clear social hierarchy. And at the top of the social hierarchy, you had the king. And right under the king, you had advisors. And these advisors were usually family members. They were people that he, he that would advise him. He usually gave them provinces to rule over. And right under the advisors to the king, you had the priests. And the way it worked in the Persian Empire was this. Whenever King Xerxes or the Persian kings would conquer a people, they would subdue them and they would use the priests to control the people through their religious practices. It was very manipulative. And so the priests were very, very important to the Persian Empire. And below the priests, you had the aristocracy. These were the elites. These were those who controlled the direction of the economy. So they were very important in the Persian Empire. And below them, you had the military people because you had to have people, you had to have military to restrain evil and provide order. And below them, you had the traders. These were the, these were the import and exporters of the ancient world in Persia. They were the ones who brought the goods of Persia to the world and brought back the goods. They fueled the economy. And below the traders, you had the craftsmen. And these were the people who worked with their hands whose father taught them a skill or a trade, and they in turn taught their sons and their daughters a skill or a trade, and they were the oil of the economy. They helped the economy run because of the 
services that they could provide and the skills that they lent to the empire. And then below that, you had the peasants or the farmers. These are kind of like the SUV drivers or the minivan drivers of the ancient world. Everybody was a peasant. Everybody was a farmer. Because in an agrarian society, that's what the default position was. You, you were a farmer and you provided the crops and you were the one who helped, you know, you also, like a craftsman, helped nurture the economy. And below the farmers were who? The slaves. And the slaves were the people that Persia had conquered and brought into their economy, into their empire to help, help run it in some specific way, some specific task often with no pay at all. And even within the slaves, there was a hierarchy. There, was a, there, was a, there were men and there were women. It was a very oppressive gender hierarchy. And even amongst the men and the women, there were those with family who cared for their own, and there were those without family. Now, what I tell you all that, where do you think Esther falls in this Persian social hierarchy? You tell me, what do we know from the book of Esther? We know that, number one, she was a slave. She was a Jew that had been taken captive by the Persians and subjected to their rule. Not only that, but as a member of Israel, she was not just a slave, but she was also what? She was a, she was a woman, which was in this hierarchy, it was, a very, it was a very oppressive situation. And not only was she a woman, but mark this in your head, she had no family. So you tell me, where in this hierarchy is Esther? She's at the bottom of the bottom. And yet what's interesting to me about this is that God, when he looks for a person to be the one who, is, who catapults God's people and their destiny to preserve the kingdom, where does he always look? He always scrapes the bottom of the barrel to find his people. I, I was listening to a sermon this week where a preacher in Memphis, I, I cannot do this to you because I love you, but a preacher in Memphis said to a group of people in his church, he said, if, if you, I kid you not, he just asked the questions, if you were a salutatorian or a valedictorian, don't stand up, don't do it, I love you too much to do it. If you were a salutatorian or valedictorian of your high school class, would you please stand up? People stood up in the service. If you were the captain of a team when you were in high school, would you please stand up? If you played college athletics, would you please stand up? More people stand up. If you, um, if you were on student council, would you please stand up? You know, more people, more people, of course, stood up. And then he goes on and he, he says, if, if, if you received a superlative in high school, most likely to be, you know, best at, would you please stand up? And still more and more people stand up. And so by the time he finishes asking this question, there's like, there's like a, you know, there's 100 people out of 500 that are standing up. And he looks around and he says, for those of you who are standing up, I have good news and I have bad news. And the good news is we are all so very proud of your accomplishments. And the bad news is the people God is most likely to use are most likely the ones sitting down. And friends, God always goes to the bottom of the barrel to use people for his glory. 
I mean, just think in your mind about the pantheon of Bible heroes. Gather them together in your mind and think about them just for a second. Abraham called to be a father. I'm too old. Moses called to be the mouthpiece of God. But but, but, but I, I stutter. You know, Josiah, right? Later, Josiah was called to be the king. He was 12, but I'm too young. David, King David, but I've got a, I, I've got like a, I'm an adulterer and I'm a murderer. Right, Rahab, my past and my present are far too messy. You can't use me. Isaiah, who preached his entire life and nobody responded. He could have said, I'm a total ministry failure. The Apostle Paul, I keep getting stoned. Rocks, that's like rocks. Like some of you are like, that's a calling I could fulfill, right? Rocks, like he keeps getting stoned. He keeps running into these dead ends, right? No, that's the person I want to use. And Jesus, think about your savior. Like, did Jesus come from a well-heeled family? No, he was born in a cattle trough. Well, was his family uh, was his family wealthy? No, Luke chapter two tells us that when they went to offer Jesus at the temple, they had to bring two turtle doves because they couldn't afford a lamb. Well, it was Jesus like maybe Jesus had like GQ like looks, but Isaiah said there was no beauty or majesty about him in former appearance that he should be esteemed. God always uses people in their weaknesses. Amen? And yet when it comes to living out our calling, our calling we, we are very quick to make excuses. I can't do that. I'm too young. I can't do that. I'm not an elder. I can't do that. I'm not a deacon. I can't do that. I have kids. I can't do that. I live this far from the church. I can't do that. I live in this place. I can't do that. I'm too big. Listen, you will always find that God steps into the gap between your weaknesses and your dreams. Why? Because your Savior is the God of the gaps. That's the language that I'm using. He's the God of the gaps who steps into the gap between your weaknesses and your dreams. Have any of you ever seen Rocky? Rocky One, right? The best of the Rockies, Rocky One. There's a, there's a scene in Rocky where Polly and Rocky are talking, and Polly looks at Rocky and says, So, like, yo, why do you want to marry my sister? What's the attraction? And, and Rocky goes, I don't know. Gaps, I guess. She's got gaps. I've got gaps. And together we fill gaps. And the greatest gap in your life is indeed the gap between your weaknesses and your dreams. But the only way you're going to have that gap filled is if you recognize that the greatest gap is between your sinfulness and an infinitely holy God. And you will run yourself ragged, constantly disappointed in living out your calling unless you understand that the gap that has been filled, the ultimate gap of your life between your sinfulness and God's holiness was filled at the cross. And Jesus Christ came and filled that gap. And in the midst of his excruciating death on the cross, filling that gap for you, what did he get? 
utter silence. Which is what is so amazing to me about the book of Esther is not what it says, but it's what it doesn't say. Like, have you ever been with something or been in a situation where, um, like, what wasn't communicated was the loudest message? When I was in, um, you know, Lauren and I both went to A&M. And if you know at A&M, it's a little cult-like, the football fanaticism that comes out of that college, right? <laughs> Point exactly. And so when I, I was growing up, I went to the A&M games. We knew all about, like, the, the, the core marching in and all the pomp and circumstance around the game. And so when I met Lauren and I knew she went to A&M, I was like, oh, that's amazing. Somebody, you know, that, that loves A&M with me so much. And I said, so, like, what do you love most about the A&M games? Is it, is it the yells that they do? Is it the, is it the, what is it? Is it the pregame stuff? Is it the way the offense always seems to, you know, break our hearts in the fourth quarter? What is it? You know, there's so many cool things about it. And Lauren goes, huh. Well, I, I only really went to halftime. The band was good. The band was good? I mean, it, it wasn't what she said that got me. It's what she didn't say. And Bible scholars have noted for, since the very beginning, that there's an amazing gap in the book of Esther. What is it that God never says in the book of Esther? What is the one word that you don't see in the book of Esther? Anybody know it? God. God. Which is really interesting to me because for many of us who are living out our callings, we live them out in a sense of like silence. Where is God between the gap of my weakness and of my dreams? Where is he? And what the book of Esther teaches us is that faith is not a feeling you get when you see God at work. It is the commitment you have when you can't. Faith is not a feeling you get when you see God at work. It is the commitment that you have when you can't. To say it another way, God's absence or God's silence does not equal his absence. His invisibility does not mean that he is uninvolved. And let me just speak into the Thanksgiving weekend for a second for you. Many of you, Thanksgiving is an amazing experience. You love to see your family. But for a lot of you, it's hard. Because for 5, 10, 20 years, you wanted to be a mom or a dad. And for some reason, God has it provided you that gift. And Thanksgiving's hard because you see your nieces and nephews running around. And you see your parents doting on these guys. And it just reminds you of your weakness. God is the God of the gaps. Or some of you have children who are just running from God. You're run, they're running. And you are loving and loving and loving and pouring into them and pouring into them and pouring into them. And you just, and all you see is no progress. God's invisibility does not mean he is uninvolved. God's silence does not equal his absence. Faith is not a feeling you get when you see God at work. It is the commitment to him when you can't. And when you begin to see that, you begin to be able to step into your calling in a way that allows you to unfloor your wings and fly. Because what is your greatest obstacle? Look at verse 11. Esther, what is Esther's greatest obstacles? She says, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law. 
to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. What is Esther's greatest obstacle? It's not her weakness. She's the queen. It's her fear. Have you ever seen in a circus, if you've ever been to a circus where you see those little baby elephants and they're tied to the stake? Have you ever seen that? They train them by tying little baby elephants to the stake. And by the time they get to the circus, the elephants are big and, you know, they could, they could wreak havoc over the whole circus. But you see this chain and this little bitty stake that looks now compared to their size like a toothpick and the elephant doesn't move from the stake. Why not? Because he has lived all of his life pulling against a stake that was far stronger than he was. But now that he's big enough to pull that stake out of the ground like a toothpick, he stays put. It is not the power of the stake that keeps the elephant there. It is the belief that that stake is stronger than he is. And for some of us, it is not your weakness that is the reason why you can't be used by God. It is your belief that your fear is greater than your weakness. And that's why a lot of you are hesitant, frankly, men, to pursue being an officer in Christ's church. That's why a lot of you ladies are fearful of, of trying to cultivate the real kind of community that you so desperately want for our church. We need it. God has created us for good works in advance for those who he's called. Us. You, can't, you cannot just say, oh, well, well you know, the, the, these guys will do it. Those guys will do it. No, he's called you. And there is a really good chance that it is your belief and your fear that's actually keeping you from living out the calling that God has called you. And he comes and he stands in the gap. And he bridges the gap between your weakness and your dreams or your calling. And Esther shows us that what God does is he always removes a negative and he provides a positive. What's the negative he removes? He removes your fear. He helps you recognize that your fear is often what keeps you back. Esther, Esther said, I, 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 can't, I can't go to the king. I, there's one law, and that is I'll be put to death if I go to the king without being summoned. And what we need in the midst of our fear is an uncle like Mordecai. And Mordecai, it's, it's like a, we need a Mordecai moment because Mordecai flips the script on Esther. You know the story. And Mordecai looks at Esther and he says, oh, it, 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 might be, it might be a scary thing to go before the queen, but you know, the king, but you know what is more scary? You know what would be far worse? You know what would be incredibly tragic? As if you don't. And you know what would be awful? Our, listen, in Tulsa, there are so many churches that do not open their arms to people who are struggling over sin. It would be awful if we required people to look a certain way or act a certain way or not have certain sin struggles to come in the doors of our church. Guys, that would be tragic. And yes, God would raise up someone else to, fulfill that, to fill that void, but why not us? There are children in this town who have suffered from so much trauma. Where are they going to go? Why not us? I mean, seriously, because we don't have a very big budget, because we don't have a building, I mean, give me a break. Why couldn't we be the ones that do it? Why couldn't we set up a counseling center that helps resource people? Why couldn't we be the ones who multiply community groups? Why couldn't we be that kind of church? Because of our fear? Because of a building campaign that stands in the way? 
I mean, give me a break. We're always going to have reasons for excuses. But if you lean into your weakness, you find that your weaknesses are not the reason why you can't walk forward in your calling. It's actually the reason why you can. Because God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Amen? And he's called us to be a countercultural community for the common good in our city. To be something different. Not to be a melting pot of self-righteousness. No. But to be a place that goes out and becomes the kind of church that some of you who are looking for a church long to have. Maybe this is it. Let's make it what we can do. Make it what we want it to be. Because our Savior stands in the gap between our weaknesses and our dreams. All right. I didn't mean to get emotional. Sometimes it's hard. I want you, here a little levity. I want you on the count of three. I want you to think about your favorite, one of your favorite movies. One of your favorite movies. Ready? You got it? On the count of three, I want you to call it out. Ready? One, two, three. Braveheart. Yeah, I think, I think I heard all of you say Braveheart. Yeah, I heard that. Thank you. You know, there's a scene in Braveheart, right, which is one of the greatest movies ever made. There's a scene in Braveheart that we all know. When I was in college, my roommate had a huge poster. William Wallace put this quote on that poster. And you remember the very end of the, the movie where, you know, the Scotsmen are sitting before this array of English might. And, and William Wallace is sitting before these guys, and, and uh, you know, he gives this amazing, amazing speech. Some of you have it memorized. He says, you have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What would you do with that freedom? Will you fight? And some veteran Spardolic goes, no, we'll run. And then William Wallace flips the script. He does a Mordecai moment on that guy. He does a judo move on him right there in front of his men. And you know, you've got some of you, I, you got it memorized. I, fight and you may die, run, and you'll live. At least for a while. You can mouth it with me, it's okay. And then someday, dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance? Just one chance to come back and tell our enemies that they may take our lives. But they will never take our freedom. And everybody goes, Scotland forever. Maybe, maybe your dreams um, are actually your liabilities because you're, you have mundane dreams and pretty dwarfed goals. Maybe your weaknesses are actually the reason why God wants to use you. You ever thought about that? And he, maybe he wants to use you here. Maybe he wants to use you at the office. Maybe you're like Esther, who stand before a decision that you have to make, or a lifetime of very practical, faithful living of, I'm going to call a young lady in the church, to, if I'm a woman, to mentor her, if I'm a woman. Yeah, did you catch that? Yeah, if I'm a woman, I'll call a young lady to take her to the grocery store. I'm going to, I'm going to hang out with the guys and just call them when it's not scheduled to just be the kind of community God desires us to be. Maybe it's in the really easy, practical things. You know, Edward Campbell, you know that name, Edward Campbell? Edward Campbell, through his teaching Sunday school class to a bunch of hyper-rowdy boys, changed the world because Edward Campbell had in his class amongst these hyper-boys, he taught Sunday school to these kids. He, they drove him crazy. There was one young man named D.L. Moody in that Sunday school class. that He prayed for D.L. Moody, man, that he would come to Christ. 
and D.L. Moody did. He came to Christ, and of course, D.L. Moody became this amazing gospel preacher, and thousands of people came to faith. And one guy who heard D.L. Moody preach was a guy named Wilbur Chapman. And Wilbur Chapman came to faith, and Wilbur Chapman began to preach the gospel to others. And there was a guy who, who had a day off of baseball who heard Wilbur Chapman preach. His name was Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday began to preach, and there was a young man named Mordecai Ham, and Mordecai Ham became a Christian because of the influence of Billy Sunday's baseball career and later his testimony. And Mordecai Ham would go all the way around the, the country, and he would preach in these tent revivals. And there was, there was a group of high school kids who were going to show up at one of these tent revivals in North Carolina because they didn't like the guy. And some young buck named Billy Frank, as his family called him, decided to go and just to watch the show and watch these people interrupt this itinerant preacher, preach this revival series. And Billy Frank listened to the guy, and he was cut to the quick. And, of course, Billy Frank's real name is Billy Graham. And Billy Graham went on to preach the gospel to 2.2 billion people. So please don't think that teaching Sunday school to a bunch of rowdy boys is beyond the way the Lord is going to use to save thousands of people. And there are a hundred of different illustrations that are true for you. God is the God of the gaps between your weaknesses and your dreams. And he wants to remove your fears and pull it out like he did for Esther. And he wants to give you a Mordecai moment. And he wants to flip the script and say, your weakness is actually the reason why God can use you. Do you believe that? That's the faith we confess. Because our Savior, Jesus Christ, had the script flipped. Infinitely arrayed in beauty and splendor and eternal majesty with his Father and the Holy Spirit. And he condescended for us. And on that cross, what did Christ receive? For the first time... He received the silence of his father's voice. And in that silence was also his absence. So that in the silence of God in your life, you will know that he is not absent. And the invisibility of God certainly did not mean that God was uninvolved, but God was not intimate. So that you will know that your father in heaven is always intimate with you and loves you and his love for you never changes. And if you're going to live out your calling, you live out your calling in the midst of your fear with the weaknesses that you have. Because God is the God of the gaps. Amen? That is how we lay our lives down together to live on our callings. Let's pray.